begin what may be the trial of the century. Derek Chauvin is on trial for the murder and manslaughter of George Floyd. Can he get a fair trial? You'll hear why I have some doubts about that on The Dirt Show. This morning in Minneapolis, Minnesota, the trial of the century begins. Why do I say the trial of the century? Because the killing of George Floyd uh, at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer has been the most consequential crime by an individual uh, in since the beginning of the century. Um, perhaps the invasion of the Capitol will qualify as an even more significant crime, but it's a different kind of crime. Here we have one single police officer uh, having arguably, and this will be a disputed issue, caused the death of a single African-American person, uh, resulting in hundreds of millions of people watching the video, seeing the video, and being outraged and starting movements all over the world for social justice, for racial equality. And uh, it's hard to come up with a more consequential event tied to an alleged crime than that event in Minneapolis less than a year ago. Perhaps when the people who invaded the Capitol and rioted in the Capitol are put on trial, that will qualify as the trial of the century. But as of now, I think the trial beginning today meets that uh, criteria. Now, look, every century has numerous crimes of the century. I know I participated in, in several of them. O.J. Simpson was the crime of the century, the trial of the century, and the Pentagon Papers was the trial of the century, and uh, Klaus von Bülow was the trial of the century, and Patty Hearst was the trial of the century, and I was a lawyer in all of those trials of the century. So I think you can uh, go too far when you call events, trials of the century. But I don't think I exaggerate uh, the importance of, uh, of this particular uh, uh, trial. And, and the world is watching, and the world will be able to watch. And this case, like O.J. Simpson, and unlike some of the others I mentioned, will be televised live every single day. Uh, you can watch it uh, on your television, and you can come to your own decisions <clears throat> as to whether or not the trial was fair. And so... I want to spend today focusing on the upcoming trial and some questions that may very well um, have to be answered if the trial is to be fair. I think the first question has already been answered improperly and wrongly. And the first question was, should the trial be held in Minneapolis at all? And should it be held now? <clears throat> Remember that the city of Minneapolis settled the case, settled the case with George Floyd's family for a mega million dollar award, one of the largest in history when it comes to uh, allegations of police misconduct. It's certainly possible that jurors in Minneapolis who are so close to the scene and who have to pay for the uh, uh, payment that will have to be made to the family, 20 something million dollars, uh, will be influenced by that settlement. We'll say, look, the city agreed they were at fault. The city agreed that their employee, namely a former police officer Chauvin, uh, was guilty. Otherwise, why would they have paid the money? Um, obviously, the jury was wadeered, was questioned about that issue when there are now 12 jurors who have been seated with a couple of alternatives, alternates who have said that they 
will not be influenced by by that decision. But you know what uh, what uh, criminal defense lawyers say when you throw a skunk in the jury box. You can remove the skunk, but you can't remove the smell. Uh, you can't unring the bell. You can't put the toothpaste back in the in the tube. Uh, so the question remains whether the jury will be influenced by the settlement. But a far more in question, uh, important question, and one which, if I were the judge, would have been dispositive for me, is that every juror is going to be fearful that if they render a verdict less than murder, and we're going to get to the charges in, in just a minute, or if they quit, or if they have a hung jury, there may well be violent reactions. Uh, and the violent reactions may influence their neighborhoods, their businesses, their homes, their children's schools, themselves. They may be frightened of acquitting or of coming up with a verdict less than uh, murder. Uh, it is a realistic, realistic fear. And that fear, to my mind, should have been dispositive. And the judge understood the fear because he has announced that the jury will be anonymous. We don't know their names. We know something about each of them. We know their occupations. We know their race. We know their gender. But at least in the moment, we don't know their names. And that surely sends a message to the jurors. Uh, normally, jurors' names are revealed. But we're not going to reveal your names because we're worried. We're frightened. There may be efforts to pressure you either before, during, or after you deliver your verdict. Uh, what I'm worried about is the thumb of potential violence, maybe even the elbow of potential violence, uh, may lurk in the minds of some of the jurors, may be on the scales of, of justice. And no juror should ever be influenced, consciously or unconsciously, by the fear that an unpopular verdict, in this case a verdict short of, verdict short of murder, will hurt them personally. They can't have a stake in the outcome of the case which inclines them in one direction or another. Had the trial been moved out of Minneapolis to a rural area and had rural jurors been selected to serve I think the assurance of a fair trial would have been increased. Number one, the jurors would not be in fear. You don't get this kind of violence in rural areas that you would get in an urban area where the crime, in fact, if it was a crime, uh, was uh, committed. Um, and so it would have lessened the fear on the part of jurors. Also, I think jurors would have been exposed to a somewhat lesser degree. They would have learned about it anyway, but to a somewhat lesser degree to the information about the settlement in the case and about other external factors. Uh, for example, we know that the defendant was prepared to, or at least his lawyers were prepared to enter into a plea bargain, and uh, the plea bargain would have convicted him of third-degree murder and uh, ultimately the federal government, the Trump administration, uh, refused to accept the plea bargain because the plea bargain included that there wouldn't be federal prosecution under the Civil Rights Act and the Attorney General of the United States bar would not accept that and so the deal fell through. But if jurors know that the defendant was prepared to plead uh, guilty uh, obviously, that's going to influence the decision. It surely would influence my decision. Uh, if I knew the defendant was ready to plead guilty to a serious crime of third-degree murder, 
I'd say to myself, gee, he must believe he's he's guilty. Uh, let me be clear. I have no brief here for uh, for Derek Chauvin. Uh, I saw the videotape. It just disgusted me. It appalled me. It made me sick. Uh, he should have been fired. That was exactly the the right result. I have no brief for him whatsoever. What happens to him if he's given a fair trial and is convicted and sentenced, um, he would well deserve. But I have a brief for the Constitution. I have a brief for a fair trial for everybody, even if I disapprove of their conduct. I have a brief against mob rule. I have a brief against verdicts coming down as the result of a fear of violence. I have a brief uh, in favor of proper charges, not improper overcharging for political reasons. I have a brief against Keith Ellison, the attorney general of uh, Minnesota, who has shown racial bigotry and prejudice in his past life and, uh, and support for some of the worst elements uh, uh, of racism, including uh, the Reverend Farrakhan. Um, so I don't trust the attorney general of Minnesota to do justice. This judge seems, based on what I've seen, to be a relatively fair person. I think he made a serious mistake not moving the trial out of Minneapolis to a, a more rural area. But judges make mistakes, as uh, a WAG in Britain uh, said, a judge, uh, a trial judge once said, uh, every British person is presumed to know the law except Her Majesty's judges who have a court of appeal set above them to set them right. Um, and, of course, there is uh, a court of appeals, two sets of courts of appeals in Minnesota that um, have a responsibility to make sure that the trial is a fair one, if it's not a fair one, to reverse the conviction. Of course, that's my specialty, getting convictions reversed. Um, I've done that now for 55 years, and so I'm particularly sensitive to the role of appellate courts. Now, speaking of overcharging, I think this case has been overcharged, and, and here I really am an expert uh, on these issues of uh, what the elements of the various crimes are, and he's been charged with three crimes, second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and uh, second-degree manslaughter, and the only one that fits is second-degree manslaughter. Uh, let's go over the three charges briefly as if this were a class in first-year criminal law um, because it's really important what the charges are. If a person is overcharged, it means A, they can be convicted of the wrong offense, but more likely it means that it opens up the door to a compromise verdict, and compromise verdicts are not fair and they're not acceptable and they're not legal. They happen all the time, but they're not proper under our Constitution, under the rule of law. So the first and the most serious count, which should be struck immediately, should be struck immediately, is second-degree murder. Second-degree murder requires that Chauvin cause the death of Floyd with intent to affect his death, with intent. He has to have had in his mind that he wanted to kill George Floyd. There is absolutely no evidence of that. There is not even a serious allegation of that. I don't think anybody reasonably can believe that Chauvin, whatever his motives were, however badly he acted, intended to bring about the death of Floyd. Remember that the knee on the neck is a common form of restraining suspects in Minnesota 
it's part, at least the defense will allege this and try to prove it, part of the official protocols of the Minneapolis Police Department. It's been used uh, hundreds of times on, 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 on suspects and until this case never produced anyone's death. And so the idea that Chauvin intended to kill him just flies in the face of the evidence, and that charge should be should be dropped. Now, it also permits uh, the uh, second-degree murder conviction in cases of a drive-by shooting. Okay, that didn't happen here. In cases where uh, somebody uh, is protected by a formal restraining order, that is a court order, uh, keeping a person away, that didn't happen here, or applies during the commission of a separate and independent felony, such as bank robbery. It does not apply. That's the felony murder rule. The felony murder rule does not apply if the person died in the course of the felony that was so closely integrated with the death. In other words, you can't separate out one act, the knee on the neck, and say it's both an independent felony and the cause of the death. The courts have held that repeatedly around the country and in um, Minnesota as well. It has to be an independent uh, felony. And in any event, what he was doing was not a felony. Uh, the knee on the neck was acceptable. In retrospect, it turns out to be wrong, and one hopes that every police department in the country will change its protocols. But to say that he committed a felony which caused death would be to stretch second-degree murder beyond all recognition. So second-degree murder should be struck immediately. It should be struck today. A motion should be made today. And it should be struck at the close of the prosecution's opening argument because I doubt the prosecution will say he intended to kill. That would be irresponsible for the prosecutor to argue. So secondary murder is really off the table. And I think it's as the result of knowing that, that the prosecutor in the case, person of questionable background, at the last minute added a third-degree murder count. Now, I don't think third-degree murder count applies either. It says whoever without the intent to affect the death. Okay, so it takes out the intent issue. Whoever without the intent to kill causes the death of another per of another causes the death of another meaning meaning George Floyd by perpetrating an act eminently dangerous to others. Well here are the words another meaning George Floyd and then an act eminently dangerous to others. That obviously would seem to mean others than the victim himself. For example, in the Breonna Taylor case, remember that case where the police was shot at uh, during uh, a search, a no-knock search and seizure, and they shot into a dark room, killing Breonna Taylor, but also endangering people who lived in the next apartment. That's what this statute is supposed to apply to when other people were endangered. It applies to shootings because shootings always endanger other people. You never know. The bullet will ricochet. The bullet will be misaimed. But it doesn't apply to a knee on the neck, which only endangers the victim. It doesn't endanger other people. So I do not believe that third-degree murder applies. Now, the Minneapolis appellate courts disagree. And they have now interpreted that crime after the events at issue here, after Chauvin put his knee on the neck of George Floyd. The Minnesota Appellate Court has interpreted it to apply, meaning others, to other than the defendant himself. In other words, Chauvin is not the other. 
Uh, another is Floyd, but others also refers to Floyd. To me, that's a stretched interpretation of the statute. But nonetheless, it was made after the alleged uh, killings, the killings in this case, the death in this case. So I, I don't think that that statute is applicable. Now, the third, the, the, the other statute that is clearly applicable, it's as if it was written for this case, so clearly applicable is the manslaughter statute. Now, there is the manslaughter statute says as follows. A person who causes the death of another by the person's culpable negligence, culpable negligence, whereby the person creates an unreasonable risk and consciously takes chances of causing death. It's as if that statute were written to cover this case. That's what Chauvin is accused of doing. He's accused of being culpably negligent, causing the death of Floyd by creating an unreasonable risk and consciously taking the chance of causing death. That's what he should be charged with, and that's all he should be charged with. There are principles of statutory construction that push in that direction. One is if you have multiple statutes and several of them are vaguely, potentially, arguably applicable and one of them is clearly applicable, you charge under the statute that's clearly applicable. The other is when you have ambiguity in a statute, a statute that could reasonably be interpreted one way or another, you always interpret it under the principles of lenity in favor of the defendant and plainly in this case, uh, there's not equal reasonable applications as a statute. The manslaughter statute much more closely covers the conduct at issue here, and it's the manslaughter statute that should be applied. But the attorney general of Minnesota didn't want to charge him with manslaughter, wanted to charge him with murder. Many people out there think he's a murderer. Now, they may use that term murder in a metaphorical way. I use it in a literal, legal, constitutional way. I think it was Thomas Jefferson who once wrote, the criminal law has to be so clear that a person can read it while running and understand it. Read it while running. I love that phrase. If you read these statutes while running, the only one that applies to this case is a person's culpable negligence creating an unreasonable risk and consciously taking chances of causing death. But the Attorney General of Minnesota doesn't want a manslaughter conviction. Probably that would result in him not being reelected or losing votes, or maybe he fears violent reactions. He wants a murder conviction, but he's making a serious mistake here, a serious mistake in the sense of the possibility of appellate reversal, a serious mistake in the sense of the jury saying, what is this? These prosecutors are charging him with intending to kill? There's no evidence of that. They've lost their credibility with us. We saw that happen in several of these other cases where policemen have been charged with, with killing people and the prosecution has lost the cases in Baltimore and in Florida because they overcharged. Juries don't like to be misled. They don't like to be told we're charging him with intending to kill even though we really know he didn't intend to kill. Maybe you'll come with a compromise verdict and come up with Third-degree murder instead of manslaughter. That's not the way the legal system is supposed to 
operate. He should be charged with manslaughter, not murder. But I don't know whether the judge will strike these charges. Um, it's un unclear, and I think we'll see motions made. Um, if I were the defense attorney, I'd make the motion now. I would renew it uh, after the close of the prosecution's um, uh, opening argument. I would ask for an offer of proof of what the offer of intent is. What, what evidence do you have of intent? What are you going to show the jury? I'd ask the judge to make a, a preliminary ruling on that. And then at the close of the prosecution's case, I'd make what's called in the federal courts a Rule 29 motion. I'm sure there's a different number. In the state court, a motion saying, wait a minute, the prosecution hasn't proved beyond a reasonable doubt that he intended to kill. You have to dismiss that uh, charge. So watch for that. See whether that's going to happen if you are watching the case or following the case in the media. Which brings us to, I think, what will be the central defense in this case. And it's a complex and, and difficult one. And I'll try to explain it in ways that are uh, easily understandable, though it relates to law, science, and, and morality. And that is the issue of causation. Under every one of the three statutes, and under any homicide statute, the state must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the actions of the defendant were the cause, the cause, caused, caused the death of the victim. I remember winning a big case many years ago. Uh, my client um, uh, was in the basement with two other buddies who were selling drugs, and a fight ensued, and one of the people, not my client, shot the other person in the heart, and he fell over, and he then turned to my client and said, you saw me do it. You're the only one who can testify against me. Shoot him in the head so that you're equally guilty and you can't testify against me. And my client did shoot him in the head. And he, my client was charged with, with murder and, uh, and convicted. I didn't try the case, but I won it on appeal, uh, arguing that the government had failed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that my client caused his death. He was already dead. He was shot in the heart. And the Court of Appeals ruled man dies but once and reversed the murder conviction, saying he couldn't be convicted because there was no evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that it was my client's gunshot wound that caused his death rather than the gunshot wound of the other person who shot him in the heart first. So causation is very, very important. Now, there are various ways of defining causation. If you ask the question, but for the knee on the neck, would George Floyd be alive today? The answer is almost certainly yes, he'd be alive today. So the knee on the neck was, the, was a but-for cause of the death of George Floyd. But the autopsy report shows that Floyd had massive amounts of drugs in his body, enough that were capable possibly of killing him. He also according to at least one autopsy report, there were two in the case, and that will be a disputed issue, um, had a pre-existing heart condition. And um, it may have been that absent the pre-existing heart condition and the drugs in the body, the knee on the neck wouldn't have caused him to die. So the question remains, how do you define causation? And that will be up to the judge, and that will be the judge's hardest decision in this case, to give the jury an instruction on causation because that may determine the outcome of the case. If he says to the jury, but for the knee on the neck, 
would he still be alive? The jury will probably convict, and appropriately, because had the knee on the neck not occurred, he probably would have survived his drug use. We don't know for sure, but probably there's enough evidence to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. He probably would have survived the heart condition. He was not an old man. People live with heart conditions for a long, long, long time. So if the judge gives the but-for instruction, the prosecution will win. But that's not the proper instruction in a criminal case. The usual instruction is um, more nuanced and, and more difficult to apply. Was it a substantial cause? Was it a significant cause? Was it the primary cause? Was it the proximate cause? Proximate cause, nobody understands what that means. People have been taking courses in torts and criminal law now for hundreds of years, and nobody has ever agreed on a definition of what proximate cause is. There are dozens and dozens of cases going in every different direction on the issue of proximate cause. But on the issue of substantial clause, cause, significant clause, yeah, I think there probably appears to be. We'll wait and we hear the evidence, keep an open mind. But on the basis of the allegations and charges, at least, there seems to be sufficient evidence to conclude that the knee on the neck was a significant or a substantial uh, cause of the death. So much will determine, be determined by the instruction. That's given by the judge, what language he uses, and he's going to get briefs on both sides, uh, arguing for different linguistic formulations, and what the evidence is. We're going to hear from the people who conducted the autopsy by the county, uh, and we're going to hear probably from the people who conducted the autopsy at the request of the uh, uh, George Floyd family. They will present different perspectives, different expert opinion. And the uh, jury will have to decide. It'll be a battle of the experts. And that's always uh, difficult because sometimes juries decide based on which experts they like better rather than which experts provide the most compelling scientific explanation for what happened. And just remember as well, every single element of the crime must be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. If you come up saying, you know, this is plausible, this is plausible, you have to acquit. If you come to the conclusion, yeah, it may have caused his death, but it may not have caused his death, we think it probably did. That's not enough. Probably is not enough. When I pick juries, the first question I ask them is, if you think at the close of all the evidence that the defendant probably did it, will you convict? And if people say they will, I strike them from the jury. Probably isn't enough. Better 10 guilty go free than one innocent be wrongly confined. Comes right out of the Bible. The story of Abraham arguing with God over the sinners of Saddam. Comes right out of Blackstone, the great writer, commentator on the law at the time our Constitution was framed. Better 10 guilty go free than one innocent be wrongly convicted. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt means you must have no reasonable basis for believing that perhaps the defendant didn't do it or didn't satisfy each of the elements of the crime. Each of the elements in causation is going to be one of the most disputed elements of this case. The defendant will make a very compelling argument. It'll go something like this, uh, and I've indicated it previously. And that is, look, uh, in Minneapolis history and Minnesota history, hundreds of knee-on-the-neck uh, uh protocols have been followed. There have been hundreds of cases where policemen have done what Chauvin did in this case, and in no previous case did any of the people die. 
So the knee on the neck didn't cause the death. It was his pre-existing conditions. It was his drug ingestion. It was his heart condition because that's the only factor that separates the hundreds of cases where a knee on the neck didn't cause death from this case where a knee on the neck did cause death. Now the prosecution will come back and say, no, no, no. This case is different than other cases. Here it was almost nine minutes. We have no evidence that in the other cases where the people lived, the knee on the neck was nine minutes. Uh, uh, here he was yelling, I can't breathe, and screaming for his mother. And here on the neck, even after he was completely subdued and showed no sign of life, um, the knee on the neck continued for at least a couple of minutes. So both sides, I think, will have compelling cases. Which side will be more compelling? We have to wait and see. I think it's a good thing that the case is being televised. Why? Because everybody has an opinion on this case already. Everybody has seen the video. Everybody has seen the protests. Everybody understands that there's far too much death among African-Americans resulting from encounters uh, with police. Those are widespread and understandable views around the country. Now let's see the evidence. Let's hear the arguments. Let's hear the judge's instructions. Then we can each become our own jurors. We will hear what the jury hears. We will actually hear more than the jury hears because the judge will keep certain evidence out, but the television cameras will include them because the public may have a right to know what the jury doesn't have a right to know. So if you're interested in the case, watch it on television. I will try to watch as much of it as I can. And I will report back from time to time on the progress of the trial. It probably will take uh, more than a week and less than a month, uh, maybe a week or two. And um, we'll see whether or not a fair trial could be administered. I just think everybody should go into this trial, like jurors are supposed to, with an open mind. Uh, the lawyer for the uh, George family has, George Floyd family, uh, has declared that this trial is a referendum on racial justice. No, 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 it's not. And if a prosecutor ever dares to use that term, referendum on racial justice, that prosecutor will not only have his case thrown out, but he will be disciplined for doing that. Criminal trials are not referendum on big issues of social justice. They are determinations of whether the elements of a particular crime have been proved beyond a reasonable doubt against a particular defendant. Issues of social justice referendum are not to be weighed by jurors. You can weigh them. You can think about them. You're a member of the public. You have the right to think about this case in whatever way you want. But jurors have no right to vote on a referendum about social justice. I know how I would vote right now on a referendum of social justice. I support social justice. But I don't know how I would vote right now on the outcome of this case because I haven't yet heard the evidence. I haven't heard the instructions. I haven't heard the arguments of counsel. So stay tuned, listen carefully, and call me from time to time and give me your preliminary verdicts. And then at the end of the case, you can call me and give me your final verdict. Do you think the verdict was an appropriate one? Do you think it was proper? Will it be reversed on appeal? We'll consider and continue to follow this very important trial on The Dirt Show. Let's turn now to my favorite part of the Dirt Show, The Wits, our first call. So these people that are calling, I uh, see, you know, calling for for um, not to have police. 
And I think we have to look at who those people are. <laughs> you know, when, when we our crime rates are going up, all you know, every uh, the protests weren't protests, they were riots, they, you know, the number of people that have died and, and the property damage. Um, and, and, you know, we want to debate, well, should we or shouldn't we? Well, real people know that there are very dangerous people in the world. And um, maybe this is the dangerous people of the world um, organizing to try to intimidate us or, or, or bait us into thinking that we could do without these, this measure of security and in a lot of places. You know, we have to look at the population that's asking those questions and, and, um, and the history of the trains of abuses and usurpation. We know difficult people get into places where we wish they, you know, we could keep them out. Um, so I, th- I think the people that are asking for, you know, questioning whether or not we should have police, um, maybe the people the police are after. Look, we have to strike an appropriate balance between making sure that the police are funded, well-trained, uh, protect the most vulnerable among us, and really protect everybody. But we have to make sure that we reduce the amount of police abuse. Look, there's much less police abuse than there was when I was growing up. When I was growing up, everybody knew that the police used what was called the third degree. They would just beat people up. Uh, they would search without a warrant. They would break into people's homes. Um, and um, today there's much, much less of that because we have a lot more accountability, but there's still too much. And uh, striking the appropriate balance between encouraging the police to be as heroic as the man was who went into the supermarket in Boulder and gave his life to protect innocent people. We have to encourage that kind of of heroism and at the same time discourage the kind of brutality that we've seen on on videos one after the other. It's not an easy balance to strike, but we can't give up. We can't defund the police and we can't take away all the constraints on on the police. Uh, We shouldn't take away their qualified immunity unless we're prepared to take away qualified immunity from many other people in the process, but we shouldn't take it away solely from police officers. So striking that balance is a very, very difficult one. And we'll continue to talk about that on The Der Show. Hi, my name is Kathleen Hartnett from Chicago, Illinois. I, I just had a question. I was wondering if Professor Dershowitz felt there was any indication to discuss what's going on uh, in Georgia and the Georgia voting rights. I'm not sure where that stands in the amendments. I know it's a state thing, but I was wondering if there was any thought into giving a show or some comments on that or your feelings about that. Thank you. Oh, it's a great question. And again, we have to strike the appropriate balance. The goal everybody seems to agree with, at least everybody should agree, that the goal is to maximize the number of eligible voters who come out to vote while minimizing the number of fraudulent or mistaken ballots that are cast. How to strike that balance is difficult. I would always err on the side of bringing more voters to the polls. I think the Georgia laws do the opposite. Uh, And remember, there are some who argue, and I think with some plausibility, that Republicans benefit by reducing the number of minority uh, voters and Democrats benefit by increasing the number. That should not be a factor. It shouldn't be a consideration. Who gets the benefit? Who wins and who loses? We should do what's fair. We live in a, a democracy, and a democracy is based on getting all the votes out, all the votes of all the eligible voters without in any way incentivizing or 
alleging fraud. And that's difficult. I don't think Georgia has struck the balance in the right way, but nor do I think Pennsylvania struck the balance in the right way when they allowed late voting in the face of what the state legislature had decreed. So I think we've seen violations of the balance on both sides. And the goal is to keep that balance clean and clear and encourage as much fair voting as possible without in any way encouraging unfair voting. I'd like your comment on Joe Biden's speech yesterday, indicating that he wants to get a, uh, rid of the filibuster in the Senate and House. Um, how does that help the U.S.? Well, first of all, the filibuster only operates in the Senate. And in the Senate, for years, it was regarded as a, quote, gentleman's club. It really was a gentleman's club. There were no women. Um, now it's a gentlewoman, gentleman's club. And uh, they have rules of consensus. Remember, originally, the Senate was supposed to be like the House of Lords in some ways. It was appointed, not elected, appointed by state legislatures. Every state got two of them. Uh, which clearly violated rules of, uh, of proportionality. It meant that uh, every citizen of Wyoming has about 100 times more influence than citizens of uh, California, uh, since both have two senators and the population of California is the size of most large countries and the um, population of Wyoming is not the size of most small cities. So uh, there's that disparity. So the Senate was never supposed to be a fully democratic institution. And for years, they had a rule that said for important kinds of votes, you're going to need more than uh, a simple majority. In some instances, two thirds, some instances, 60 out of 100. Um, and the filibuster is a remnant of those old rules. And everybody loves the filibuster when it helps their side. And everybody hates the filibuster when it stops their side from getting their way. And I think uh, when you abolish these rules, uh, some of the people who abolish them when they're in the majority regret the fact that they did it when they're in, in the minority. For example, recent appointments to the Supreme Court uh, have been obtained without 60 uh, votes and probably would have been defeated had there been uh, the old uh, filibuster method. So it, it's a knife that cuts both ways. If you're a favor of pure democracy, you want to end the filibuster. If you're a Democrat today looking for short-term victories, you know you have control of both the Senate and the House, you want to end the filibuster. If you're somebody who cares about long-term Democratic, um, with a big D, Democratic Party victories, maybe you wonder whether or not uh, the filibuster will serve your interests in, in the long term. Um, these are decisions that should be made based on principle, not on partisanship, but they never are. So I suspect we'll see the filibuster continue at least for a time. Hello, Professor. This is Tom from California. In regard to your comments on gun control, what do you think of Miramar, formerly Burma? Uh, the government there has a monopoly on violence, and they're simply killing protesters that speak against the government. It would seem if the people were armed, that would not be such an easy thing to do. I'm interested in your comment. I, of course, don't know the answer to that. It's possible that if the protesters were armed, that would uh, provide a greater justification for the uh, police that are engaging in 
totally unlawful conduct. It would give them a greater justification to use massive force. You know, individuals will never have the kind of weapons that the government has and the armed forces have. So if you give individuals weapons and they use them to fight back, it may result in many, 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 many more deaths that, uh, you know, Gandhi fought effectively against a British rule without a single gun. And in other countries, guns were used to overthrow legitimate governments, like during the second Russian revolution when the Bolsheviks prevailed over a more democratic uh, government, um, Cuba. Um, uh, neither government was particularly good. Castro overthrew a, a brutal dictatorship um, using arms. Um, it, it's, it's, again, a double-edged sword. Um, I don't think the constitutional right uh, bearing and keeping arms was intended as an aid to revolution or as a way of giving citizens the right to shoot back at police officers, at the militia. Uh, the militia is what's mentioned, a well-regulated militia in the Second Amendment. And I think the Second Amendment was intended largely for self-defense against individual um, marauders or non-governmental and non-lawful uh, attackers and also for hunting. I don't think it was ever intended to arm the people so that they can use their weapons against a repressive government because they almost always lose when they do. But again, reasonable people could disagree about that. That's an empirical issue about whether having guns in your possession helps or hurts you when the government comes uh, uh, for you. Um, you know, uh, as a Jew who lived through the Holocaust, very young person at the time, uh, of course, I wish the Jews of the Warsaw Ghetto uh, had been better armed, um, but uh, they couldn't have resisted the German tanks and the German airplanes and the German bombs. And in the end, their fate was sealed by the fact that no nation would come to their help, that the United States and Britain refused to bomb the rail lines to Auschwitz. It was governments that failed during the Holocaust, not brave women and men who fought with uh, handmade weapons against uh, the Nazis. So, you know, there's a lot of romanticism around the individual with the gun fighting against government oppression. But in reality, the history is a lot more mixed. So I'm going to stick with my view of the Second Amendment. Well-regulated militia uh, should mean as well that uh, guns in the United States should be well-regulated. There should be waiting periods. There should be tests for mental incompetence. There should be disqualifications for people with criminal records, etc. But I have my views. You have your views. You can express them on The Dirt Show. We take all views on The Dirt Show. And today we talked about uh, the improper uh, use of police force. And we'll see what the outcome is of the uh, Chauvin case, and we'll be following all the developing stories about every issue that's important to you and to the American public on The Der Show. An important part of The Der Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216 -710 710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.